Okay, we are going to continue our series in uh, Indestructible Joy in Philippians. Uh, there's Bibles under your chair. Um, if you want to grab that, we will be reading out of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And that is on page 1084. And we believe that this is the word of God. And to honor that, we would love for you to stand as I read. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one, in, of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let's, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests, interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Lindsay. Good morning, Flourishing Grace. How we doing? Good, good to hear, good to hear. Man, this past uh, weekend was awesome. Uh, two nights ago, we had our annual uh, chili cook-off, which isn't really annual anymore because we haven't done it for the past two years since 2019, but it was amazing. And I just wanted to give a big shout out uh, to all of our cooks, everybody who cooked the chili, right? I mean, you guys, you guys make it happen. You guys make the event what it is. We had the most chili cooks we've ever had. And honestly, the competition's getting fierce, okay? It's just getting better and better and better every Every year, it's really, really good chili. All of our volunteers who bake cornbread or man the s'more station or, or prepare drinks, all of that stuff, just I want to say a big thank you to all of our volunteers. What a fun night. I saw so many of your guys bringing family and friends and it was a blast. And so always, always a good time. For those of you who are new, my name is Josh Knight. I'm the pastor of Preaching and Vision. I can't remember if I said that or not, but either way, uh, welcome. Welcome to Flourishing Grace. We are in this series in Philippians that we're calling Indestructible Joy. And over the past few weeks, we've seen Paul's kind of source of joy, right? Paul is sitting in a Roman prison. Um, and it's not, it's not, a, not a great situation to, to be in. Um, it, I, I don't know if you can picture this, but it's just not it's just not a happy place riding from a, from a Roman jail. Um, this past week, my family and I went to Lagoon, and I had never seen this before, um, but at Lagoon, do you know there's like, the, there's an old jail inside of Lagoon? And there's like this plaque, and you can like go find it, and you can go read it. Like back in the day when, you know, family men would go to Lagoon and imbibe too much, you know, good old 
Utahns, um, they would get thrown in this, in this jail at Lagoon. And they can go in it. It's the creepiest place. You can actually go, go find that next time you're there. And anyways, that just popped in my head. I was, I was thinking about Paul sitting in a, in a Roman jail, which is probably worse than the jail at Lagoon. Um, he's sitting there and he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi. And it's this unbelievable letter of joy. And, and the question has been, how, how does he have such joy? Like, how does he have so much delight? How, how, does, he, how does he have this courage and boldness? And we've been unpacking that all the way through. And what we're going to see this morning is that there's a joy in knowing and living Jesus's humility. Let me say that again. We're going to see the joy of knowing intellectually and then living out with our lives, with our hands, that Jesus's humility, right? Living that out, knowing it and living it. And Paul's going to, going, to, going to show us that this morning. And what I want to do with the text today is I actually want to kind of flip it upside down if we can, right? What Paul does is he kind of gives the, here's what we need to do, and here's why we need to do it. And I want to start with the why first, right? Paul's going to point us to Jesus as the why. And I want, I want to kind of lay Jesus before us first and then say, man, Looking to Jesus, let's look at how to actually live this out. So let's look at Jesus' humility and then say, okay, how do we actually live out Jesus' humility? As a community of Christ followers, and I know, I know not everybody in the room is a follower of Jesus. Not everybody watching online is a follower of Jesus, but most of us are. And here is what we aspire to be is a, a community of people who live our lives like Jesus lived his life. We want to embody Christ. And so we're going to look at Christ and his humility towards us, and then we're going to say, how do, we, how do we live that out? Does that make sense? It's kind of where we're going. It's kind of the roadmap for today, if you're taking notes. Um, so Paul starts, we didn't start off. I just said we're going backwards. Paul uh, just begins to describe and lay out the gospel in, in maybe the most beautiful place in the entire New Testament is here in Philippians 2. It's absolutely unbelievably beautiful. In verse 6, really the end of verse 5, he says, Christ Jesus... In verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he, Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's stop there. What Paul is doing in this section as he begins to unpack what the gospel is, is he begins by unpacking what theologians call the incarnation of Jesus. Okay, if you, if you have one of those, uh, we passed out a couple weeks ago those uh, Philippians journals, right? If you want one, I think there's some in the sound booth back there. You can grab one on your way out, or even now, you can just get up and go get one. It's okay. Um, won't offend me. Um, you can just kind of circle that whole thing and just write incarnation, right? That's, what, that's what's going on here. Paul is talking about the incarnation of Jesus, which is what we celebrate every Christmas, right? God coming and being among us. And this is exactly what Paul's saying. He's saying God actually stepped off of his throne and put on flesh. He became human, Emmanuel, right? God with us. That's what Paul is saying. And he's, in the words that he's using are describing this exactly, right? One of the key words there is form, right? He says that uh, though he was in the form 
of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness, and being found in the form, in human form, right? So three times we see this word form, which really means, literally in, in the Greek, it is appearance of. It's appearance of. Jesus even though he was fully the appearance of God, has all of the attributes. What's the, what, what, is, what is the appearance of God, right? Well, what is your appearance when you look in the mirror? What is your appearance when other people talk about you? If I said, hey, would you describe this person? How would they describe you? What is your appearance? What is your form? Right? So all of the attributes of God are in Christ. All of the attributes of God are in Christ because Christ is fully God. He has the full appearance of God, the form of God. But he doesn't count equality with God of a thing to be grasped. He doesn't cling to it. He doesn't say, this is who I am, and I'm not willing to, to let it go. Everybody must see my appearance. He says, no, 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 that's not what I cling to. I don't cling to that. He releases his grasp on his appearance as God. And he takes the form of a human, right? He becomes, he puts on flesh. He's clothed in human form. All of who God is is put into flesh. He emptied himself, says, taking the form of a servant. What does it mean that he emptied himself? What did he empty himself of? It, did Jesus empty himself of all of his power? Well, clearly not. He made the lame to walk and gave sight to the blind. He calmed the storm and the raging sea with just the words of his mouth. He didn't empty himself of any power. Did he empty himself of glory and majesty? We see him on the Mount of Transfiguration in the full glory, the Shekinah glory of God. He didn't empty himself of glory. What did he empty himself of? I love the way that Augustine puts this. St. Augustine said it this way. He said this. He said, Jesus emptied himself by taking that which he was not, not by losing that which he was. Let me say that again. Jesus emptied himself by taking that which he was not, not by losing that which he was. Jesus took the posture of complete humanity. Not that he lost any power or glory or strength, but he released his grasp on it. He took flesh concealing these things. His glory was covered by human flesh. His power was covered by human strength. His purity was covered by human sin, my sin. Jesus' power and glory and might were concealed, were veiled, covered up by human form, by human appearance. And then it, Paul goes on, he says that he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is complete, total obedience and submission to God the Father. Absolute, complete submission to God, right? There are different levels of submission and obedience, right? Um, you, you guys know this if you have kids, right? But you don't think this all the way out. You don't think it all the way out because it would be, it'd be weird to do so, but we're going we're gonna to do that together, right? If I, said, if I said to some of you, hey, I need to borrow a car. Can I, can, I, can I have your car? Some of you would say, sure, of course you can, right? Some of you might say, oh, I don't know. Like, 
I like my car, right? But some of you, most of you would probably be like, sure, Josh, you can, you can borrow my car. No, 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 actually, you know what? I don't need to borrow your car. I need to like have a car. Like, will you just give me your car? Some of you in the room might actually be like, you know what, sure. Like, I love you, I know you, and I would, I would love to like honor you in that way. But most of you probably not, okay? Most of you probably not. Now, I actually don't need a car, but I do need a house. Can I have your house? Most of you in the room would probably say, no, no, you cannot have my house. Some of you might say, you can, you can like live in my basement, right? Sure, you can come live in my basement, but actually most of you would probably say, you can't even live in my basement. That's creepy and weird. Please don't, okay? I don't need a house and I don't need a car, but what I do need is a kidney. Can I have your kidney? Now, some of you in the room might say, well, maybe, right? I mean, you only need one, Right? And some of you might, I hope, maybe love me enough to lend me a kidney, right? But I don't need a house or a car or a kidney. What I need is your heart. My heart's bad, and I need a new heart. Would you give me your heart? It's, it'll be painless. They'll put you, out, they'll put you under. They'll just take your heart and they'll put it, give, it, put it, give it to me. And, you know, you won't wake up from that. But, you know, I'll have a heart. I don't think anybody in the room is going to give me their heart. However... What if it was your kid? Would you give your heart for your kid? I would. In a, in, in a heartbeat, no pun intended, I would, I, would, I would gladly give my heart to my child, right? So if, if my boy needed a new heart and there was some way that I could give, I don't think it's legal, but if I could, if I could give my heart to him, uh, I would do that. Why? Full, complete, absolute, total submission and obedience. Why? Because I love my boy more than anything. And Jesus loves God the Father more than anything. And he loves you. God the Father loves you. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that his heart would be pierced for you, that his life would be exchanged for your life. Jesus submits all the way to death, even death on a cross. Not some, not some simple death, the most brutal, violent act of death possible because God so loved you, so loves you, he was moved to submit his son and ask his son who loved him to complete absolute total surrender and obedience. It's unbelievable. There's no other way. There's no other reason that God would do this other than perfect, perfect love, complete and total love. It doesn't make any other sense. And it had to be him. It had to be the perfect, spotless God who would take on human form. What Paul is saying is, Jesus, live the life that I could not live. He lived it perfectly because he was fully God. And he took the full form of man to live a perfect, spotless, blameless, pure, and holy life that I couldn't live. And then he died the death that I could not die. He died in my place as a perfect atoning sacrifice for my sin. My sin is not, my, my death would not be perfect enough to cover you, but his death is perfect enough. His body, who he is, is perfect enough to cover all of us. And he loved you enough to do it, to step off the throne of glory, to be clothed in human flesh, to live the life you could not live and to die the death that you could not die. He loved you enough to do it. 
And he did it. He clothed, he masked, he veiled his glory, his holiness, his purity, and his might. So that, listen, so that you might be veiled in it. When we come to Christ, we are clothed in his glory, in his purity, in his majesty, in his righteousness. He has veiled that by human form so that my human form might be veiled by it. We now, those of us who are in Christ, are now veiled in his righteousness, in his glory, in his purity. It's who we are in Christ. And there's nothing more. There's nothing more for us to gain. Everything that we need and everything that we have is in Christ. I love the way that Spurgeon put it. The great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said this way. He said, in heaven, the whole glory of salvation will be to the wounds of Jesus in nothing else. All of the glory of salvation belongs to the wounds of Jesus in nothing else. There's nothing else that saves us. There's nothing else beyond that. I was talking to a friend this week, and um, we, we meet regularly, and we, we go around and around and around and around because he struggles so much with this idea. He would say amen to everything I just said about the incarnation of Jesus. He would say, yes, I agree with that 100%. But there's something deep down inside of him. Since he was a little boy, he's been taught that there's, way, there's things he can do in order to gain more of Jesus. Certain boxes that need to be checked if he's going to grow closer to Jesus and become more like Jesus and, and gain more affection and gain more righteousness and gain more worthiness and gain more purity. And it's just deep inside of him. He can't let that go. He's like, yes, I believe that's true. It's Jesus and nothing else. But deep inside of him, he can't shake it. I've got to do these things that I've been told to do since I was a little, little boy. Friends, there is a way to gain more of Jesus. There is. You know what it is? Jesus. Just go to Jesus. Be with Jesus. It's all in Jesus. It's all in Jesus. And you can go to him now because we, there is no more separation between us and God. And so we can have all of Jesus right now by going to Jesus and being with Jesus and becoming like Jesus and giving our lives to, to absolutely emulate Jesus. But there's no way, there's no way you can buy more of Jesus. There's no money that no amount of money you're ever going to give to gain more of Jesus. You can't obedience your way to Jesus. You, you can't, there's no list of rules to follow to get more of Jesus. It's all in Him. All of the glory of salvation for all eternity will be in the wounds of Christ. His blood, not my merit, and not yours. It's all in Christ. Next, Paul goes on to the glorification of Jesus. He says this in verse 9. He says, Therefore, given all of that, that he stepped off his throne, that he put on flesh, that he became obedient to, to, the, to, the, to, the, to death, even death on a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In heaven, 
every knee in heaven, every knee in heaven will bow to Christ. Every knee on earth will bow to Christ. And every knee even under the earth, the demons and Satan himself will bow their knee to Jesus because Jesus Christ is Christos. He is Kyrios, Lord, King. He's become King. Here at Flourishing Grace, we talk about this. This is, this is the gospel. If you want to summarize the gospel in the shortest version, right? It's Jesus became king. That's it. The incarnation is what Jesus had to do in order to become king and in order to establish a perfect kingdom to redeem his people so that they might rule with him in this kingdom. But the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus Christ is curious. He is Lord. He's king. He's king of all, king of heaven and earth and everything under the earth. He rules all. All things belong to him. And at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And that king loves you perfectly. Perfectly. This is beautiful news. It's finished. There's, there's no more for us to do. He has accomplished it all. So we can rest in his completed work. We can be encouraged by his completed work. We can find comfort in his completed work. We can rejoice in his completed work. We can cling to his completed work. There is joy here that will not be found anywhere else. So, are you encouraged by your king? Anyone? Anyone encouraged? By the work of Christ? Anyone comforted by his love? Any, anyone here this morning comforted by the love of Christ for you? Amen. Anybody want to participate with him? Anybody want to join in with him in the advancing of his kingdom? Any, anyone moved by his affection towards you and his sympathy, his mercy towards you? It's unbelievable. Verse 1. So, if, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Paul says, complete my joy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord, in one mind, do nothing of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. How do we respond to the work of Christ? Paul makes it clear. He makes it crystal clear, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, right? the same mind as Christ, the same love as Christ, being in full accord and of one mind. Nothing brings joy to a pastor like seeing his congregation live out the humility of Jesus, right? This is what Paul's saying, complete my joy. Yes, I have so much joy because I know that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. I know that there's joy in you and I delight in that joy. It's indestructible joy. 
but I want you to complete my joy by actually not just knowing the gospel, not just knowing Jesus' kindness and humility and love and affection towards you, but actually living it out, living out the gospel. That's how you complete my joy. Paul says, come on, let's, let's, let's do this together. And then what he does is he, he, gives, he gives two kind of buckets. First is the negative. Here's some things that we need to be on guard against and not do. We, might, we need to stop doing these things or watch out and never do these things. And then he gives some things that we need to start doing. So the first thing is this. I want you to see right out of the gate. This is the negative. These are the things we must not do. The first thing I want you to see is this. Conceit is the death of community. Conceit is the death of community. Paul says, do nothing, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing of selfish ambition or conceit. Here's the bad news. Our entire Western world is marked by selfish ambition and conceit and celebrates selfish ambition and conceit. And this is just who we are. It's everywhere. These two things, selfish ambition and conceit, are everywhere. And we, as the church, we got to be on guard. We cannot allow them into our hearts. We cannot allow them into this community. Paul says, do nothing of selfish ambition or conceit. What is selfish ambition? Selfish ambition, uh, this is the person who works hard to build something for their own gain. It says, look at me. Like, look what I've built. Look, look what I've done. Look what I've achieved. Look at what I've, look at what I've accomplished, right? And this is everywhere. Like, this is so unbelievably pervasive. Like, just flip on social media. Social media now is designed to communicate your selfish ambition to the rest of the world so that everybody will see how unbelievably good you are, right? That you have achieved this thing, you've accomplished this thing, right? You've done this thing, right? And, and for most of us, it's like this low-key selfish ambition, right? It's just, I just want the world to know how amazing of a mom I am. Like, I just want them to see, like, how hard I work as a mom and how, how I just dominate every day. Like, look how my kids are all coordinated in their, in their outfits. And I just, look at that. that. That's me, selfish ambition, right? Or maybe it's the new, the new car. Maybe it's the new thing, right? For most of you, right, it's not like full-on selfish ambition. You're not like posting a picture of like your Ferrari with a trunk full of cash on social media. If you are, let's talk. Maybe you can increase your giving a little bit. But you have a, you have a trunk full of cash? How is that possible? No. Can I drive your Ferrari? No, it's kidding. Is this on camera? Is this recorded? For most of us, it's like a low-key selfish ambition. Showing off the vacation. Showing off what the, the, new, the new routine and how, how, how you're, you know, doing this thing or doing that thing, right? For most of us, that's what it is. And the reality is that's what, that's what 90% of social media is. It's just a way to feed our, to feed our selfish ambition. And we're not, we're not going to like hardcore brag and not going to hardcore show off with our Ferrari full of cash. Like it's just little small things. Every, every day, just little, little things. Look at my vacation. Look at my family. Look how good I am as a husband. Look at how good I am as a mom. Right? It's, it's, it's these types of things. Look at the trip that I get to go on. Right? It's just, I just want people to see what I've accomplished. See what I can do. For some of us in the room, the reality is, like, this is what Paul says, do nothing. Do nothing of selfish ambition. Do nothing. Don't let it in. Don't let, it's the death of community. Don't let it in. And we look around, we wonder, I mean, why is everybody angry? And why, why is there no community anymore? Like, why, why can't people in, interact and engage? Selfish ambition 
is insanely pervasive in our community. And for some of us, the call this morning is simple. We, we need to actually get off and sign off of social media and just, just be done with it. And if, and if there's a little bit of a panic in you when I say that, you're like, <gasps> like there it is. Like, okay, that's for free. Like, that, you just, that's it. The idea of losing your, your ability to kind of low-key expose your selfish ambition to the world around you, there, there it is. Conceit. Conceit is uh, kind of literally in the Greek. It's empty pride. Empty pride. Later, a theologian, I'm going to quote a theologian later, he calls it vain glory, right? Empty pride or vain glory. You've centered your life on meaningless pride. This person has extreme self-confidence and says, I do all the work around here. Like, I do all the work. I carry all the weight. I'm always right. My ways are the best ways. My views are the best views. All right, if everybody would just kind of listen to me, the world would be a better place. All right, the people in my office would just, when they're decision making, if they would ask me my opinion and actually follow that, our, our company would be like the most successful company in the world, right? If, if, my, if my family could just see that I, I do all of the work around the house and nobody does anything, right? If they could just see this, this is conceit. I'm the best there is at everything in my life. I'm the best there is. And it's empty pride because, because, listen, it's not true. It's not real. You don't do all the work. Nobody in a community does all the work. Nobody's always right. Nobody's always right. Nobody has all the answers. Nobody holds the best views. But again, our culture today is completely saturated with conceit. Like no other time in history. You can actually live in a world right now where, where, where all day, every day, you are just being, in f- your views and your values and your beliefs and your opinions are all being reinforced. You can live in the echo chamber, whether you want to live in the echo chamber of Fox News or you want to live in the echo chamber of CNN. It doesn't matter. They're just going to tell you you're right. We get on social media again, we can just defriend everybody who disagrees with us and just surround ourselves with people that agree with us and just fuel greater and greater levels of conceit. Friends, conceit is the death of community. It tears it apart. If you don't believe me, just look outside. Just look outside. Every time the individuals of community choose themselves over the community, The community is damaged. Every single time the individuals within the community choose themselves over the community, the community becomes damaged, right? When Adam and Eve chose themselves in the Garden of Eden, it was the first time in eternity that anyone had ever chosen themselves. And in that moment, in that instance, the imago Dei, the image of God in them was broken and fractured. It damaged the community perfectly. And Christ came to restore the damage done by their selfish ambition and vain conceit. The Democrats are not destroying America. They're not. They're not. I know some of you think they are. They're not. The Republicans are not destroying America. They're not. I know you think they are, but they're not. Human conceit is destroying our culture. Outside these walls, it's destroying our culture. It's tearing apart families. There are friendships that have been for decades and no longer speak to each other. Just over the past few years, because of conceit around politics, conceit around COVID. Listen, 
COVID, so many churches closed their doors during COVID. Closed their doors. And we blame COVID. But it's not COVID's fault. COVID stopped some, many churches from gathering for a season. Yes, it did. But it didn't stop anybody from caring. Let me say it again. It stopped churches from gathering for a season, but it didn't stop anybody from caring. That's conceit's job. Selfish ambition's job. Churches closed not because of COVID, but because of selfish ambition and vain conceit. This is the reality. How do we fight against this? How do we, how do we stop conceit from plundering our communities and our joy? Paul gives us the positive. He gives us the flip side. We replace it with the humility of Christ. Second thing I want you to see is this. Others' first humility builds and heals communities. If, if conceit and selfish ambition destroys and ravages communities, other first humility builds and heals communities. Paul says it this way. He says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Um, a few weeks ago, I quoted from Gordon Fee. He's an American-Canadian uh, theologian and one of the leading thinkers uh, in the work of Philippians. And he says this about this text. He says, if selfish ambition in vain glory are sure bets to erode relationships within the church, then the surest safeguard to a healthy community through a healthy church is when, listen, considering each other as more important than oneself characterizes its people. You want a healthy church. You want to know what it looks like. It's when the people are marked by, characterized by a humility where they are considering each other more important than oneself. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. This is the daily practice of a Christian. This is the daily practice of a Christian. To, to ask the question, who am I considering myself more significant than? Who in my life do I think I'm better than, right? Maybe it's an employee or a coworker. Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a neighbor. You know, the neighbor, that guy that nobody likes. Maybe it's that guy, right? Maybe it's that, that a coworker. You know the one, right? That one, right? Nobody, nobody thinks that, that that person's better than, than they are, right? Who are you considering yourself better than? This is the daily work of a Christian, And then we submit ourselves. Just like Christ submitted himself fully to the obedience of the Father, we submit ourselves in full obedience and surrender to Christ. And we consider that person more significant than ourselves. And we extend significance to them. We speak significance in their life. We do acts of significance towards them. We live out the humility of Christ. Maybe even a harder question is this, who in this community at Flourishing Grace do you view as beneath you? Don't flippantly answer that with nobody. 
actually wrestle with it. Do you the work of a follower of Jesus? Who has done less than you in this room, in your opinion? Who has given less? Who has served less? Who has not been around as long? I've been here for a long time. Who needs to earn your respect? May you, with joy, live out the humility of Christ towards that person today. May you extend humility to you. May you do something that would speak significance into their life, that would make them feel the weight of true significance. This does not mean that we let people walk all over us and take advantage of our kindness. Verse 4, Paul says, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others, right? It's okay to have your own interests at heart, but it's not okay to only have your own interests at heart. It's okay to have your own interests at heart. It's not okay to only have your own interests at heart. We must consider others more significant than ourselves. How do we do this? Like, how do we actually achieve this? this when, our, when our culture is bombarding us, telling us that we can be always right, that with everything in us, our pride, our, our, our conceit, our, this empty pride within us, this vainglory, makes us want to be the most significant person in the room. How do we wage war against this? Well, that's what Paul does in his argument. And I said, I flipped it. But we look at Christ. Paul says it this way, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, it's already yours in Christ Jesus. It belongs to you already in Christ. Spurgeon said it this way, he said, all the beauty of the saints comes from Jesus. All of your ability to be humble, all of your ability to, to reduce your significance and make others more significant than yourself, all of that, comes from Christ. It will not come from your own strength. We must look to Jesus. We must look to Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he humbled himself. He emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Can you take the form of a servant? Can you take the form of the servant in this community? Every day, can you, can, you, can you ask the question, man, who am I considering less than significant myself? And then take the form of a servant, embody Christ, live out the humility of Jesus. It's one thing to know the humility of Jesus, to know that Jesus loves me and that he's humbled himself for me, but to actually live out the humility of Jesus, to embody the humility of Jesus, to become the picture of the humility of Jesus, to be like Jesus. That's the goal. Not to know him, but to actually become like him. Now, I said earlier that a united community, a united church, brings joy to the pastor. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. This morning, as we approached this text and as I was working on it this week, I was overcome with joy because even though maybe this feels like a rebuke and, it, and like I, I think that there's some serious things here that we need to be on guard against and we need to watch out for. We cannot allow selfish ambition and vain conceit to, to come into this community that is flourishing grace. But the reality is, over, as I think back on the past however many years, since 2016, since 2016, churches in America have been absolutely wrecked. 
I mean wrecked. Uh, every week, I have friends all over the country in different states, different places, di- all different types of churches. I know pastors who have quit their jobs in the past few years and said, I'm done with ministry. I'm not doing this anymore. I know churches that have closed down and said, we're not doing this anymore. This is, this is a waste of our time. Just racked with selfish ambition and conceit. But here at Flourishing Grace, over the past few years, I've seen a community that has again and again and again and again and again rallied around one another, looked to Jesus, and set aside their preferences, set aside their political views, set aside their racial views, set aside uh, their, their gender views in order to love one another, in order to embody Christ. We've had this unbelievable sense of unity in our staff team, an unbelievable sense of unity in our, in our lead shepherds. I'm not saying that we're perfect. There's no, there's, no, there's no perfect people in this room. There's not a perfect church. But I want you to be encouraged this morning that we get to be a part of a community. This is rare. And I, I know when you are a part of a sweet, sweet thing that is so unbelievably rare, like you don't realize it in the moment. You realize it after the fact, and you look back on it years later, and you're like, man, that was like, that was a sweet time of my life. This is rare. What we get to participate in right now is rare. And I, I want to encourage you this morning. My joy has been completed again and again and again. I've watched people in this room hurt other people in this room, not intentionally, accidentally. And I've watched you lay aside your pain and your sorrow and seek reconciliation because you love Jesus. Jesus has empowered this community. Again and again and again. I love the way that we keep looking to Jesus individually and pointing each other to Jesus collectively. Again and again and again. And so my call to you this morning is that you would continue to do that. That you would continue to look to Jesus individually, knowing, knowing his humility towards you. And that you continue to point each other to Jesus again and again and again, embodying, living out his humility until he calls us home. That's my prayer. I love you, Flourishing Grace. It's a delight. It's a joy to be able to pastor this congregation because of the way that you all embody Jesus. Let me pray for you. And in a moment, we're going to receive communion. And communion is the picture of one body participating in the body of Christ. It is, it, is a, it is an actual participation in the spirit of Jesus. As we, as we come before the table, as we come before the body and the blood of Christ, I want to challenge you this morning to be reminded of the incarnation of Jesus, to be reminded of the glorification of Jesus. And if, if, when I asked the question earlier, who in this community do you view as less than yourself? I wanna challenge you this morning to do that work of submitting yourself emptying yourself before you come to this table and participate 
and the body and the blood of the one who emptied himself for you. Jesus, we come before you this morning and we acknowledge you as king, the one who belongs all glory and honor and praise, the one who has united this community. While so many other communities have failed, you have, you have watched over us, you've protected us, you've given us a spirit of humility and kindness towards each other, you've given us a hunger for repentance and reconciliation. We praise you for that. All of the beauty of flourishing grace is in you. You are our treasure. You are our delight. You are our king. Would you increase our affection for you this morning? Would you increase our joy as we come before your table? Would you open our minds to your incarnation and your glorification? Would you humble this community? Pray these things in your name. Amen.